Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Snell. And we are brought to you by space. Space. Space, space. Outer space. I don't know. I don't Can't know. put it I in just, the square. I love that we have a sponsor that has got the word space in it because it's only right because this is the show where we talk about space stuff. It's true. And there's a lot of space stuff to talk about. All, uh, all, as always, again, I'm reminded that when 81 episodes ago, we're like, is there really enough stuff to talk about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is. We're going to start with a little uh, pre-flight checklist item, our version of follow-up here on this show about opportunity. So we spoke last time about the Mars rover that is solar-powered. So that dust storm really looks like did a number on it. NASA is now a couple weeks into a 45-day, quote, active listening phase where they are trying (laughs) to communicate with the rover. At the end of those 45 days, they're going to go into, quote, passive listening mode, which means if it if it wakes up and, and, and pings uh, the, the outside world, then they'll hear it, but they're not actively seeking it out. Uh, we're, we're a couple of weeks into this, and there's no word yet, but the dust continues to clear. In fact, there's an image from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that flew over uh, Perseverance Valley, where Opportunity is, which is a perfect name for a place for this rover in its situation. And you can see it, little bright speck on the surface. Uh, yeah. So the you sky, can see the sh- like the shadow, little bright spot, yeah, little little yeah. shadow. It's like the the the. I'm reminded of that uh, space shuttle book uh, that we read, and how like early uh, spy satellite technology was, you know, was brought into space. And I, I thought we got spy satellites over Mars now, so we mm-hmm. can we can peer down at our our little uh, our little rovers that need more need, need more light. Need more light. Mm-hmm. Also, active listening. I like that. I feel like that is a note-taking technique for college students or something. Like, or 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 maybe it's a job interview technique. I yeah, don't know. It's listening. like it's like where do you see yourself in five sols? Uh, that kind of a, a thing. I yeah. don't know. That's good. <laughs> so it, the skies are clearing, and so you know the debate continues about what really happened to this rover. The thought is that the solar panels are coated in dust and it may take uh wind to cl- to clear them off, which we've talked about. Has happened several times over the last many years that this rover has been in service. So if that happens within this 45-day period or within the sort of passive listening period, that'll be good. Of course, the longer it is off or sort of in this, you know, fault state that it's in, the more likely it is it'll stay there. So fingers crossed that opportunity wakes up, but at the very least we can see it now and, uh, you know, kind of wave as we go over. Yeah, it's good. We know where it is, uh, which we already did, but now we can see it. And that means that the, the sun can see its solar panels and yeah, we just got to hope that it wakes up soon. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm still optimistic. These rovers have been through so much I, just, I know. I feel like it's got more life in it, but yeah, we'll I, see. I feel like this can't be the end, right? That it's got to be some crippling, awful, just brutal hardware problem, like whelp the wheels don't spin anymore, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? Because that's what happened to Spirit. Yeah, um, they, they drug a dead wheel behind it for a while. Yeah, and then finally, I was just like, I can't go on. Save yeah. yourself. So I would like that to be it, and not just like it got a little dusty, and so it died. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about global warming. And the state okay. of California, which Hello. increasingly feels like its own nation. <laughs> yeah, you know, so this is a, a fun story we'll put in the show notes uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle about our uh, my state, California, and um, our current governor, outgoing governor, Jerry Brown, who is the longest serving governor in the history of California because he, he was the governor in the 70s and then he came back, which is like, it's wacky. Um, Cal- and California, as everybody knows, like voted by several million for Hillary Clinton, um, is a very blue state. And um, the the policies of the current administration in Washington are very much the antithesis of the policies of the state of California. And so on a lot of different fronts, the state of California is engaging with slash fighting the federal government of the United States. And you see that in things like you mentioned climate change, right? Like uh, uh, pollution standards for cars um, and and, uh, targets for car fleets for uh, mileage that um, 
and, and the California market is so huge that if California sets standards and California has a waiver from the EPA, I think since the early 70s to do this, California can set its own standards. The idea there, the story behind that is that the smog in LA was so terrible that California said, we have to have higher standards for cars in California because um, we are being hit with these horrible uh, pollution issues that nobody else sees. And just because it's okay out in Montana doesn't mean that it's okay in LA where we've got so many people. And so they were given this waiver by the EPA, EPA that lets them set their own standards for stuff like that. And that is now a, a bone of contention. There's a question if the the uh, uh, that's going to try to be revoked by the current administration. And there are threatened lawsuits and lawsuits and all sorts of things going on where the state of California is basically saying we are going to stand in defiance. Um, and because the state is so large, what ends up happening is if the state sets rules for what cars need to do, then uh, or you know the the market is so big that um, it's hard for a, an auto manufacturer, let's say, to make two different kind of cars for sale in the United States: the California car and the everywhere else car. What also happens is a lot of other states say. Uh, that are like-minded say, yeah, we're going to set, we're going to follow California's standard. So now you basically split the U.S. market in two, and what ends up happening essentially is that California's rules go for the whole country, because the automakers don't want to make two different models and sell them in different sets of states. Right. And um, I can understand why if you're not in California or one of those like-minded states, you might be grumpy about it. But the sheer power and size of California means that it throws a lot of weight around with with issues like this. Um, so in addition to all of that, the governor set up this uh, summit meeting called the Glo- Global Climate Action Summit. And the idea there was essentially... Um, that if your country doesn't want to fight climate change and global warming, then maybe the states and cities and counties and all other sorts of local governments uh, have to step up and do it. And so this was sort of a California-sponsored summit with mayors and regional leaders and things like that. Um, And in there, so what does this have to do with space, you ask? Well, um, California said they're going to launch a satellite. (laughs) <laughs> so I'd like to I'd like to uh, announce my candidacy for the head of the California Cal Space we'll call it. No. Uh this is they're they're working with a company called Planet Labs. Um they want to they want to um build a satellite that will do some earth science measuring pollutants in the atmosphere that trap heat, identify their sources. It's going to cost, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. The state of California is currently in a good financial state. Uh that tends to go back and forth. It's a boom and bust economy very much here. So so uh, in 10 years if the or five years, if the uh, state budget is in the red, uh, this sort of thing wouldn't be proposed, but it can be proposed now. And politically, it's pretty expedient because it is a uh, thumb in the face, thumb in the eye of, uh, of, uh, of the federal government. So they haven't specified like what exactly it'll cost or when it'll launch. It's more like a, a talking point, but it is pretty funny to hear the state of California say, yeah, we're going to do our own science. This won't be the first time when George W. Bush um, said he would stop funding stem cell research. He wouldn't allow any federal funds to anyone doing stem cell research. The state of California, actually a uh, a referendum passed in the state of California to fund our own stem cell research funding system because that was 10 years ago, I think, 15 years ago. Um, and it, it, the same idea. It was uh, it was to basically say, well, if you won't do this, we will. And that's a very California thing. And it, it, this all comes with uh, a story that broke today that uh, basically buried in a, in a large report. The, uh, the White House is reporting, the Trump administration is reporting that it is – on its current course, expected the planet will warm by 7 degrees Fahrenheit or about 4 degrees Celsius by the end of this century, which is... It's fine. Everything's it's, fine. <laughs> the The word the, was, the Washington Post uses is catastrophic. <laughs> so this is... It's, it's faster. It's more serious than, I think, numbers that have been thrown around before. And what is... Why I'm going to tie the two together is that the administration basically doesn't offer... This is an argument to combat climate change, but saying that the fate, like this is already happening, like our fate is already sealed. So why bother with all these other regulations, which is really, awesome. really, ooh, ah. 
Yeah. No, no, I don't like it. I don't like yeah, it at all. It's a, it's a, if you were wondering what would happen when the effects of climate change became so obvious that the deniers couldn't deny anymore, this is what it will be, right? It will be, what can we do? It's just the, it's just a fact. We might as well live a little like that. Mm -hmm. This, this seems to me to be the best pivot that they can manage at this point is, well, it doesn't really matter. Um, this, you know, what, what, a little pollution here or there is not going to affect the overall, uh, result, which is, that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, world world leaders and lots of organizations have said that we need to keep this within two degrees Celsius or things are going to get uh, real serious. You're talking about four, four and a half degrees Celsius. You're talking about coastal cities being underwater. You're talking about no more coral reefs. You're talking about massive storms, massive heat waves. This is a significant change in the climate at a time where, unfortunately, NASA and other federal agencies are being hamstrung from researching and, and working on this in addition to all the regulation stuff that's been undone or stopped or made worse. So it's a, it's a rough one two punch here, but, uh, these, I think these sorts of numbers and reports will only further people who want to work on this states like California, other countries, uh, to get serious about this. Cause that number is, is really dangerous. Yep. Yep. Well, that's a bummer. Uh, sure. it does, it does help us move into our, uh, sort of our first big topic today, and that is ISAT-2, which is a, a launch, uh, is a new uh, satellite, went up on September 15th, so just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I woke up and, and watched it with one of my kids, which is always fun. Uh, this is, uh, we have to talk about the acronyms, right? So if uh, anything yep. uh-huh. this show is consistent on, it is talking about acronyms. On brand. And honestly, I think this one's pretty good. Like out of all the ones we've done... This one's pretty all right. So it's NASA's Ice Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite 2, Ice Sat 2. I like it. It gets my I got I got a thumbs up. Yeah, so Ice the I in Ice Sat stands for ice. I see you're going to you're going to you're going to bring me down now. No, no. No, no. I'm going to I'm I'm going I'm with you. I I think it's funny that the I in Ice Sat stands for ice. But it, ICE isn't an acronym itself in this context, right? Which is good. The, and then the C stands for cloud and the E stands for uh, elevation, not land elevation. But uh, And so, yeah, I approve of this, that those are the things that it's looking for and that they didn't like do it where ICE is the ICE part and then they jam the other ones in his letters. So, yeah, I approve. I think this gets the, uh, the liftoff podcast thumbs up for uh, space acronyms. Mm-hmm. There have been far worse. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, this is no, this is like top five percentile i think mm-hmm. of of uh acronyms so uh thumbs up to i set to yeah so this satellite's job is to measure the average annual elevation change of land ice in places like greenland and antarctica and it works by basically shooting lasers at the planet and seeing how long it takes for the lasers to bounce back uh, that is called the advanced topographic laser altimeter system or atlas again pretty solid work on the acronym. And it, uh, like I said, it measures the time for these individual light protons to travel from the spacecraft to Earth and back. And this <laughs> thing is crazy accurate. You're talking 60,000 measurements every second, and it can measure ice, uh, the articles I read said, down to the width of a pencil. So it, yeah. a spacecraft orbiting the Earth, shooting lasers, and it can measure something with and extreme accuracy. It's lasers. Lasers are the best. Lasers, lasers are the best. Have you ever used a laser level? I mean, they can measure. They're totally accurate. They're uh, the best. So yeah, of course, use a laser to measure things in space. Why not? It's the best. It's the best. Uh, it does follow in the footsteps. Do spacecraft have footsteps? Uh, and in the footsteps of the first ISAT. What? There was a first ISAT. You mean ISAT two is the second ISAT? Mm-hmm. I would never have guessed that. Sorry, was that too uh, much? ISAT Senior <laughs> launched uh, back in two thousand and three and is now out of commission. Big Daddy ISAT. Uh, yep. So uh, uh, another series uh, in the spacecraft. Obviously, there's the laser and stuff. It's it's more accurate. It's uh, it's a refined design, but it follows in the footsteps of that earlier spacecraft. But what's interesting about this launch? I mean, a this is an important thing that NASA is doing, studying the Earth, studying how the climate is changing. But it was also the last flight of the the Delta II, which is a rocket with a extremely long and really successful career. It flew 156 flights with only two mishaps. Uh, 
it first flew like 30 years ago. This has been a, a real workhorse for ULA. And of course, it is way older than ULA because ULA is like this weird conglomeration. But uh, it was built by McDonnell, McDonnell Douglas. Yep. Uh, and I had forgotten about this, but in, in reading about the Delta II, you know, after the Challenger disaster, uh, Ronald Reagan basically announced that the space shuttle would no longer carry commercial payloads. And that really opened the door for commercial partners with rockets uh, that, you know, when we talked about the shuttle however many years ago now, one of the pitches was, hey, you know, NASA can take stuff up, but our partners can take stuff up too. And because we have basically a space pickup truck, you just strap your satellite into the back of it and we'll deploy it for you. Right. And that was a, a big push for the orbiter. But after the Challenger accident, uh, they decide to go a different route. And you can you can right. see why, right? They don't want that. I guess they don't want the liability of that. And they want to yep. be able to focus on what they want to focus on. Also, I mean, timeline wise, I think it was probably apparent at that point that it was going to cost way more than they yeah. thought it was initially. And this was a good, like a good time to say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. But it did mean that the Delta II, and can we just pause for a second to appreciate a spacecraft with a 99% success rate, now that it's all done and it's in the books, 99%, you can do the math pretty good. Um, it, uh, it, is, it, it is meant to, uh, and was built for the idea that it had to pick up satellites that had been designed to be um, put in the back of the shuttle. That, that, like, that was its purpose, was to be a shuttle launch replacement for the um, original GPS satellites, in fact. That's uh, that's right. So it, it really, I mean, we can talk about the other missions, but you had 24 GPS satellites and then a bunch of uh, NASA missions you're going to recognize. 2001 Mars Odyssey, Dawn, Deep Impact, Mars Pathfinder, Kepler, Spitzer. The Delta II had a very impressive resume by the time it retired. Yeah, and 99% successful. That's the thing. And they got it off the ground three years after the Challenger disaster. So mm-hmm. February 89. So... Um, not not too shabby in getting it up and running so that they can launch this stuff. And not only can you thank it for GPS, it launched 24 GPS satellites. It also launched 60 Iridium satellites, which are the, uh, the satellite phone technology that lets mm-hmm. people in remote places still uh, stay in contact. So, yep. uh, like, this is, this is, sorry, Space Shuttle, this is the kind of vehicle that actually needed to be launching satellites. And so in the end, that's what happened, is that it got built and it was a workhorse. Yeah, absolutely. And you didn't have to basically rebuild it every time you, f- you flew it, uh, unlike the shuttle. Yeah. Of course, over a 30-year history, as you can imagine, the Delta II got upgraded several times. Uh, it had a first-stage uh, Rocketdyne RS-27 main engine that burned RP-1 and liquid oxygen. Uh, it had a second stage uh, that was powered by a restartable Aerojet, uh, Aerojet motor. And then there was an optional third stage and... Uh, you could also strap solid rocket boosters to the side of it. So this was a very, you know, we talk about now with like SpaceX and like the Falcon 9, the Falcon Heavy, like uh, sort of a modular spacecraft where, you know, hey, you, you've got the heavies, basically three Falcon 9s zip tied together. The, yep. the Delta II was this in its day, right? So you had all these different configurations and depending on exactly what you needed, you could say, oh, okay, I need two solid rocket boosters. There was a configuration that th- that flew three solid rocket boosters. Not very often. It was kind of a, a weird-looking spacecraft. It was very much, uh, hey, you can go and get just the amount of horsepower you need, and that's it. Right? Like a very configurable, very optional spacecraft. And I think that's why it lasted so long, because it met such a wide variety of needs. And of course, it spun off things like the Delta IV Heavy. I mean, the technology lasted a long time, but it really, you know, I think people today think of the Falcon 9 as like the the workhorse. Well, the Delta II held that title for a really, really long time, way before SpaceX came along. But uh, now it's retired and it will be, there are, uh, there are a bunch of other launchers, right? I was looking and there's really no clear answer to what is the successor to the Delta II? The answer is there are lots of different rockets out there that are being used, and it really depends on the profile of what you're trying to get into space. So there's no direct um, successor where they've retired the Delta II and replaced it with something. It's sort of at the end of its era, and they decided to not keep making Delta IIs. And so they've got, although there are pieces, aren't there? There are pieces of Delta II that remain all over the place. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be one 
built out of spare parts that will go on display at the Rocket Garden at Kennedy Space Center, at nice. the Visitor Center, which is a really cool thing to walk through. I got to do that back in uh, in 2015. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, but there is one specific piece of a Delta II that we should most definitely oh, talk man. about. Oh, man. Yeah, so... Whenever something like the Chinese uh, space station that deorbited not, not too long ago over the uh, over the ocean, um, most of the Earth's surface is ocean. Most space debris burns up before it comes down. So the chances, like Skylab pieces, might have landed in the Australian outback, like, and that was like it hit land, but there was land where there was no one. Again, we talk a lot when something deorbits about the opportunity for it to hit something. Like, oh, the that space station's going to come down and hit something. But the fact is, it's little pieces, if anything, probably going to land in the water. However, however, the only person ever to be hit, confirmed by space debris, they were hit by a piece of Delta II. <laughs> this is a pretty wild story. So... Uh, a woman named... Are we on ungenius all of a sudden? Is <laughs> this what just happened? This, this is, I feel like be... Mike should be here talking about space debris hitting people. I should... That's a really ungenius topic. I like that. It, it, it is. There's that lady who got hit in the stomach by a by a meteor. You could talk about her. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. good. I'm going to write That's that down. One of my favorite stories of space as a kid was there's this picture of a lady and she's got like a bruise and uh, a meteor... <laughs> came through her roof and it's like one of the only again even though we get debris human made and not uh coming falling to earth all the time or at least hitting the earth's atmosphere it is incredibly rare for us to uh for it to actually like hit a person Mm -hmm. but it did in january (laughs) (laughs) 1997 a woman named lottie williams was exercising in a park in tulsa oklahoma when she was hit in the shoulder by a six-inch piece of blackened metal, it basically, uh, the articles I read said, kind of bounced off her shoulder. She was not injured, uh, but she kept it, and eventually NASA got their hands on it and tested it and showed that the fragment was consistent with materials used in the Delta II. is believed to be from a launch just the year before where the stage had re-entered the atmosphere. And like you said, most of the times they just burn up, you know, spent rocket stages there's not a whole lot there. Right? They're basically flying fuel tanks. Yeah. And but for whatever reason, however it came down, this one little six-inch piece uh, made it. And you know, if Lottie Williams had worked out in the sun or in the shade instead, you know, she would have been, she would have been out of the way. But uh, there you go. It's a little piece of Delta Two. Yeah. Trivia. And if you're thinking like I'm going to be hit by space debris, oh my God, it's gonna it's gonna destroy me. The fact is, it's a little piece of metal that's been slowed by the Earth's atmosphere. It's reached its terminal velocity, which is not particularly great. And they are, you're right, flying fuel tanks are also try to, they try to make them as light as possible because the lighter you make it, the easier it is to launch anything. And so it's, you know, it probably was not a particularly uh, heavy piece of metal. And it was also, uh, because it was six inches long, uh, that would probably uh, factor into it being slowed by the atmosphere quite a lot. So it's not surprising that she wasn't hurt by it. Um, and it's cool that they figured it out, right? Because people, probably people have been hit by space debris. Also, it's possible that there's like a piece of junk in your uh, front yard and you're like, what the heck is this? And it was space debris because if you, you know, how would you know? How would you know what it was? So this is a cool story though. I like it. Good job, Delta II. You, and again, this, uh, uh, because it, she wasn't hurt, I'm not going to count it against its safety record. It's still at 99%. That's good. Yeah, that, it, it doesn't deserve a ding for that. She's no, fine. It's fine. Every, everybody's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's definitely the uh, the end of a, a chapter in in commercial flight. You know, the, those blue rockets are gonna gonna be a thing of the past. But you know, after a little while, you can go down to Florida and see one yeah, in the Rocket cool. Garden, which it's, I like. It's being honored there. It should be honored. It's it's got a really impressive, important place in history. Yeah, and filling in for when the space shuttle couldn't do its duty, um, mm-hmm. that it was able to do that, and now also um, uh, like a milestone that we have entered a different era where. Yeah. There are so many other options out there that ULA does not need to keep building Delta IIs. Yep. And, you know, they are building their sort of next generation rocket, the Vulcan. This isn't in our show notes because it just broke. But they're going to be using the Blue Origin motor. Uh, right. <laughs> the BE-4. So, uh, you know, ULA is is developing a new rocket. Uh, and uh, it's not a replacement for the Delta II necessarily, but there are new rockets coming from them. And the story was that instead of going with 
you know, sort of a, a, a known like long-term partner like like Rocketdyne or somebody else or Aerojet. Aerojet, they right. are They're using the Blue Origin motor. Interesting. Very interesting. So uh, we got some more stuff to talk about, but I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This show, this episode of Liftoff, this very episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Space! You can make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and much more. So think through a project you're working on. You may need an online store. You may need a portfolio. You may need a blog. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that stuff. You can even have it all on one site if you want. And the best part is there's nothing to install. There's no patches to worry about. No upgrades needed. You're not running around being a server administrator. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. At FM, we use Squarespace for our blog. So anytime we have an announcement about uh, a new show or new merchandise or something like that, we uh, we go into Squarespace, add the blog post. We drag in the, the show artwork right from Finder on the Mac. It's, it's really, really simple. I don't have to worry about making sure it looks good because Squarespace themes just have all that uh, ready to go. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you do decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Hey. So what's next? Uh, it's very exciting. So I've got some asteroid news, Stephen. Some space probe news from the Japanese space agency's probe Hayabusa 2. It has uh, gone to the asteroid Ryugu. I think we've talked about it before. Uh, and very exciting in the last couple of weeks. It has landed two small robotic rovers on the surface of the asteroid. These are not Spirit and Opportunity style rovers. They are like jumping cans. <laughs> I don't know how to describe them. It's like a they're, they're cylinders, and they're about well, they're not even like cans. They're like like jumping. Uh, cans of peanuts or something they're about seven inches or 18 centimeters in diameter and about two and three quarters or seven centimeters inches or seven centimeters high so they're um you know again it's sort of seven wide by three tall it is it is a, a low uh short squat cylinder weigh about two and a half pounds or a kilogram and there are two of them, 1A and 1B, and they're both on the surface of Ryugu now. They were deployed by Hayabusa 2 uh, from about 180 feet up. That's about 55 meters up. And there's very, you know, the gravity on a, a little asteroid is very light. So they're they're sort of gently pushed down, and they've landed. They're transmitting pictures. There's an awful lot of lens flare. I think J.J. Abrams was definitely involved in the consulting for the <laughs> for the imagery of this. Uh, but you can see it's like there's a surface. There's just like rocks and stuff on the surface of this asteroid. And now what they do, because the gravity is very, very light, they can kind of hop around they don't drive around or anything they kind of like just hop and float around because you can just push off and then kind of drift over somewhere and then come back down and they can check out the asteroid uh so that's really cool the pictures are cool they somebody made a, a video that is really a series of stills it's not it doesn't feel too video-y but you can you can see sort of the movement of the sun in the background as the asteroid kind of uh spins around and it's pretty awesome that like we we live in an era where uh we are landing on and exploring asteroids and comets and stuff um a bunch of different missions in the last decade decade and a half to comets and asteroids um there uh it's pretty cool uh, also there is more to come there are two more rovers that would probably be deployed in the next six months um one of them has an acronym so that is mascot it is not like a, a big furry animal in a 
or a person dressed in a big furry animal suit. <laughs> it is mascot mobile asteroid surface scout. Thumbs down mm. on this acronym. Yeah, it's not great. When you're stealing from parts of letters of words to make your thing, I don't approve of that. But anyway, I approve of mascot. I don't approve of its acronym. And my favorite name of the four rovers deployed by Hayabusa 2 uh, is the next one after that, which will be Rover 2. (laughs) So just to be clear, Rover 1A and 1B are there now. Mascot will be coming in a little bit. And then early next year, I think they plan to deploy Rover 2. But um, oh, I love boy. it. It's like there's little little uh, little cans jumping around on an asteroid. I love it. And it <laughs> looks great. And sending back pictures. It's awesome. And the pictures yeah. from uh, from Hayabusa two itself are also really cool. Like you you're looking down looking down from very close from you know 180 feet away at the surface of this asteroid. Yeah, there's a New York Times link in the show notes. It's a pretty nice timeline of. Uh of, of imagery mission. from the the whole mission, yeah. Mm-hmm. They did a great and job with that, where it's like the most recent images are on top and they keep updating it. Yeah, it's really cool. There's like an Earth flyby from 2015 and the uh, the asteroid, you know, is small and fuzzy and then it gets closer and more in focus over time. And yeah, this this I think this story has really captured a lot of people's imagination. Is it going to some place like the moon or Mars you know, it's like, okay, like we got rovers on Mars. It's kind of like everyone's reality we live in. But dropping a couple little rover guys on an asteroid feels sort of next gen in a way, sort of science fiction, I, honestly, in a way. Yeah, and uh, totally. I think it's, it's exciting. And again, we, like we talk about the the New Horizons Pass coming up in a, in a few months, like these type of objects teach us more about our solar system. They teach us more about the stuff that makes up the planets and about the history of where we live. And so it is in addition to some really cool photos and like the sort of amazingness that like we basically caught up with an asteroid and landed rovers on it. uh, We're learning about the, uh, about the solar system. I mean, there's thought there's thoughts that there's water ice here. And so again, figuring out kind of the stuff of the solar system is important important knowledge to have yeah i should mention the uh rover 1a 1b and 2 they're they're collectively called the minerva rovers but minerva is not the name of any of them they're just that's their kind and then they've got their little numbers but they're uh hopping around it's great pretty cool yeah so i think we we can't escape talking about the uh the bfr the bfs oh, no. No, we can't go a whole episode without mentioning SpaceX, huh? Yeah, uh, we almost did it. We almost did it. I debated doing this because this happened right after our last episode, but I figured it's a big enough yeah. story. And so we don't have to go over the news again. I don't think, I think everyone knows that uh, SpaceX is basically sending a Japanese millionaire and a bunch of artists around the moon at some point in the 2020s. At some point in the next decade, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so really what I want to know is how, how what you think of this? Uh, how did you sort of respond to, I think you and I were both keeping up with the news and they announced it. Uh, what do you think? I think it's a fun idea, but it's so far away. Like when they're talking about the human spacecraft component of the BFR, like the BFR doesn't exist. They are They are, I think, claiming that they're building a BFR now. Um, but mm-hmm. they they showed some components of it, but it doesn't. Yeah, I mean they're in the the early stages of rocket building. Yeah, so you got to build the BFR, and then you got to build the the spacecraft, the human rated spacecraft to go on top of it. And we know how much SpaceX has worked on getting a human rated spacecraft for their Falcon to do commercial crew. So, you know, when they say. Uh, orbital tests of the BFR in 2020 and this flight taking place in 2023 I think I think sending a Japanese billionaire into uh, around the moon with artists to uh, interpret the meaning of you know uh, moving around the moon like that I think that's all cool I think having the capacity to send people around the moon is cool um, by the time this happens for real I would imagine that Gateway might actually exist in in uh, cislunar orbit because <laughs> that's a... I don't I 
like the race to see who who is out there first because I just don't see how they say twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty three, but it's SpaceX, so it's going to be what twenty twenty four and twenty thirty. Yeah, like there's just it's so it's hard to get excited about it. It's a fun idea, but as with so many SpaceX announcements, the the cart is so far uh, before the horse that it's not. You know, I I feel like it's not even worth getting uh, deeper into it than that. I'm much more interested. And, and this is one of those frustrations I have, as I've said many times with Elon Musk, which is he's taking our eye off the ball of what they're doing now that's interesting in order to talk about this thing that's completely unlikely or very far away. Because what's interesting is SpaceX is getting perilously close to doing their first commercial crew, right, it, beginning of next year. And that's exciting. And instead, we're talking about a Japanese billionaire who may or may not fly to space in a decade so that's what do you think? I'm on board with uh, I'm on board with that. You know, I think uh, there's something about that I really like. In contrast with like the NASA lunar missions, which were, you know, as they should have been, scientific. You send geologists to pick at rocks and all that sort of stuff. Like, I like the idea that something like this can can serve another purpose. And I think art is a phenomenal purpose to serve in this sort of capacity. Uh, I, I I did get so I was laughing. I got sad thinking about a race between the Lunar Gateway and the the BFR BFS. Like, oh man, that's that's two projects that are <laughs> plagued by timelines. Yep, it's I, true. I I think that I think Gateway could happen like on a decent timeline now because it seems like they're kind of aligning a bunch of different projects to yes. get there. But yeah, who knows? Everything gets delayed. Every it's been a long time since we had a space mission where somebody said we're going to be there in three years, and we were there in three years. Right? That just doesn't seem to happen. Mm-mm. I think what's what's really interesting about it is we spoke about this with the Falcon Heavy and the Tesla. That SpaceX is really good about getting people to talk about space stuff. And whether you thought the car in space was a funny idea or a a bad idea, whatever, you you were talking about it. And that's a win for SpaceX in their view. And it's a win, honestly, for the entire industry, I think. And what this sort of project does, which is called, by the way, like it's like hashtag Dear Moon. What this this sort of project does is it will get everyone on the planet talking about it when it happens. Because you're going to have, I think they've said half a dozen or so artists. And I would imagine that the range of those people will be very wide. And you know, I'm sure it's not going to be the most popular, you know, I don't think, person in any, any given category. But this is going to be something that captivates the planet when it happens. And that's, I think, a win, like I said, for SpaceX and the industry. And so if, if, you, if, you, see, if you saw the Falcon Heavy car thing as like level one of this, this is – cranked way higher than that right like this is designed to get everyone talking and uh i think i have no problems with it you know i think um i think there's a contingency of people who follow this stuff who think that missions should always be about progression of the technology or of science or figuring out you know this problem or that problem and that's how it's always been and that again all that stuff is good and important but I think there is room for something like this that is more about the soul and heart than the brain. And uh, I'm excited about it, to be to be honest with you. Again, yeah. I have all the same concerns you do about timeline and safety. And we've seen SpaceX struggle to get the crewed version of the of the um, of their spacecraft ready for commercial crew. And it's like, you know, they can obviously they can learn from that from the commercial crew situation and apply those lessons here. And BFS will be human rated, I'm sure, by by NASA and all these, you know, all these things will have to get done. It's just going to it's going to be slow, uh, but exciting. And I think announcing it now helps you helps you fund it and helps get people excited and engaged. Yeah, I think uh, as we've talked on the show and as you just said, inspiration is an important part. Getting public engagement is important. Uh, and several people have made reference with this, this bringing artists along. Uh, have made reference to Contact, which we watched as a member special, I think, with Jodie Foster. How, mm-hmm. th- th- you know, one of the lines in that movie is uh, they should have sent a poet, like, that she can't. Um, yep. <laughs> she can't comprehend what she's seeing. And there's this feeling like, and, and this has been the case for a long time, like, you want to send, ultimately, you want to send people into space who are not 
just sort of professional space people because they are going to be able a, a writer a journalist um they're going to be able to bring something to it a, a painter uh, whatever it is that space podcaster sure whatever uh that that they're going to have a different perspective and and what's interesting is that that's been tried uh before uh let's take a teacher into space right and the challenger disaster ended that project and actually not super well known but somewhat well known is that the columbia disaster um prevented what was going to happen which was that miles o'brien from cnn was going to go on a future shuttle mission and then after that they had to you know basically plant the plan the final pieces of the iss and the shutdown of the shuttle program and that didn't happen but so it's been attempted or at least it's been discussed but um it that is fun uh because i would love to see the perspectives of people who are not you know, test pilots or or scientists who not not that they can't make observations like that. They're certainly capable of it, but uh, a different perspective. Somebody who think views the world differently than how the people we generally send into space do. Thumbs up. Yeah. Again, cool. we're just passing thumbs up uh, out all over the place. Today. It's all good. It's a happy. It's a happy episode. So let, let's see if if our fifth and final topic continues that you have watched the first on hulu which i have seen none of yes because you don't uh, pay for hulu i don't pay for hulu and i don't have your login so uh we're just gonna listen listen to you talk about this i guess should we blow the spoiler hern at some point do it now do it later yeah i'll, I'll do it later i'll do okay. it later um I'll, I'll keep it i may not even spoil it okay. really um i don't think there's anything the the big event that happens in it happens in the first five minutes of the first episode so i guess if you literally want to know nothing about this except that it's vaguely space related you shouldn't listen to this segment but um the thing that i will mention about the premise of the show happens literally in the first five or ten minutes so unless you want to be completely spoiler free john syracuse style full media blackout style um you can listen to this but it's a so if the first is an eight episode TV show. It's a uh, intended to go as an ongoing show. I don't think it's been renewed yet. It's on Hulu. Um, I don't know if it's going to be on in other places. I think maybe it's a. It's got a commercial broadcast partner in the UK. I think maybe it's Channel Four, but I'm not sure about that. Um, anyway, it's on Hulu here in the US. Stars Sean Penn as an astronaut, and then there's there's been a lot of um, uh, talk. Uh, about how doesn't Sean Penn seem like he's a little bit old to be an astronaut, but that's it's kind of a story. Um, and of course, we have older astronauts now, but Sean Sean Penn is fifty eight. Um, but you know, I think I think it's not unreasonable. He's kind of more uh, just kind of wrinkled and creased, but not necessarily super old. Um, he's an astronaut. I think what's interesting about him is that um, he is also the Thirteenth human to set foot on the moon. So the idea here is that we're in the we're in the near-ish future, and we've gone back to the moon, and now we're going to go to Mars. And Sean Penn is a hero. He's well known. He was the first person to go back to the moon. And uh, also starring is Natasha McElhone. She is a an Elon Ma- Elon Musk type. She is the CEO of a commercial uh, launch provider named Vista. They're launching the uh, spacecraft that are going to go to Mars. And um, and it's set, what I found kind of funny from a space perspective of watching it is that it's set in New Orleans. And I think this is basically because of tax credits that they shot it in New Orleans. Because there's no plot reason why it wouldn't they wouldn't just say they're in Florida. But they say that they're in New Orleans and they claim that the, the Vista has a launch facility in New Orleans. And I laughed because... I have a hard time believing that we will ever, ever see uh, human space flight launches from of this kind from anywhere but Cape Canaveral, right? Like, that's not going to happen. But here it's like, oh, no, no, they built their own space facility in New Orleans so that we could shoot there and get tax credits. Anyway, they um, – so the, the show is about – it's a drama about the people who are going to go on the first mission to Mars. And um, – the reviews have been really interesting. I think, just without any spoilers at all, I think that people 
who listen to this show will probably love it. But I have a caveat, which is it's a drama. It's not a space exploration adventure. And it's a human drama. If you're expecting The Martian, the television series, you're not going to get it. So don't go in thinking that you're going to get The Martian. Because what this show is trying to do is tell a story about what, who are the people who would choose to go to Mars. What, they're going to be gone for years. Because you know, it's going to take two and a half years or something to get there and, and do the mission and then come back. Uh, what impact does that have on their personal lives and their families, the people left behind? What about the other people at Mission Control who are sacrificing for this? And it's about all of that. So it is a show that is about um, about space exploration. It is about technical details. I think they got the technology stuff really right. It, they set it setting it 15 years in the future. There's a lot of very casual tech that they want to make seem futuristic. So there's, you know, augmented reality glasses and voice control and stuff like that. I think it's handled very well. Um, I think they did a really good job there. And I think the space stuff is also really well done. And their technical advisors did a good job. Uh, Charles Ilashi, who was the head of JPL uh, until he retired a couple of years ago, is one of the, he's got the top scientific advisor credit, but they've got like seven scientific advisors on board. So it is that. It is also about interpersonal relationships. It is about a father and his daughter. Um, Sean Penn has a daughter who is troubled. Um, his wife uh, died. And you learn how that happened during the course of the series and how it has scarred both him and his daughter. So, it, it, you know, if you are tuning in to see rockets going up and and sort of like everybody excitedly exploring space, um, you won't get that because or you won't just get that. Um, and one of the reviews I read that made me chuckle after I had seen the series is Sean Penn goes to Mars very, very slowly. And there's truth in that. Um, so uh, watch it. But, but as, as somebody and this is done by um, the guy who did who created House of Cards, Bo Willimon. And his goal here is to create a, a the idea is what what would be a serious TV drama about a mission to Mars? That's what he's making here. And so we want, he wants it to be about the human beings who are involved. Who, because I think I read an interview with him where he said he really is fascinated by the idea of extreme explorers, people who explored Antarctica, people who went uh, on the first ships to the New World um, to explore. Like, what drives somebody to risk their lives? Um, what does it do to their familial relationships and their personal relationships uh, to do this thing and that space is the context that we currently have to explore that. And so I really liked it because it was all those things, because it was space stuff, which I love, and trying to understand the people. But it's much more the right stuff than it is the Martian, if that makes any sense. It's much more about people and them being imperfect and having messy things in their lives, but also um, being these people who are going to go to Mars. And I appreciated that about it. Um, now, I will mention a few things that are technically spoilers. So again, if you want the full media blackout, here's your chance to tune out. Uh, the first episode starts with the launch of Providence, which is going to Mars. They've already got, the science is really good. They've already got a Mars spacecraft in orbit, in Earth orbit. They've already got a return vehicle on the surface of Mars making uh, propellant from the Mars atmosphere. It's very good science. Um, the, uh, the Providence blows up at throttle up in a, a scene that is very much just a, the Challenger explosion. Um, and I was a little disappointed that it is like, that's not the only way you could have a failure. But I think the idea there is that that was a, that was a model because they wanted them to, to die on launch and that was the model they chose. Although given that they're in a capsule at the top of the spacecraft, I there was that moment where I thought that they should just have an ejection system and it should shoot the capsule off and all that, but that doesn't happen. And they die. And uh, what, you, what you discover as you watch the first 10 minutes is that Sean Penn was supposed to be leading this mission. And for unknown reasons at the beginning, he got kicked off. 
And so he's, he sends his best wishes to them as they're on the launch pad. And he's very sad and he's very upset because he can't go. And then they all die. And what ends up happening is that he and Natasha McElhone, the Elon Musk-like figure, have to um, convince everybody in the government and uh, to fund another mission because all the other pieces are in place, but they now need to build a new Providence too to get up to the other pieces of the mission. And there's the politics of it. There's the mourning of the people who they worked with and who they were all close to who just died. And there's the trying to build a new team. And the season is about that. The season is about how do we get approval to go? How do we uh, deal with our grief? How do we find the new people who do we choose to be on the crew? How does that affect all of their lives and the lives of their families? How does it affect Sean Penn's relationship with his daughter, who's in a very delicate situation, um, and now he's planning on leaving and going to Mars? And the season ends with them going to Mars. So I think the plan for this show, if it extends for multiple seasons, is presumably next season will be them on the long duration space flight to Mars and how they deal with each other and also stuff back on Earth with the people they've left behind. If they did a third season, I imagine it would be them on Mars. A fourth season, I imagine, would be them coming back. <laughs> and a fifth season, I imagine, would them being, be them being back and dealing with the fallout. But yeah, but that, but I think that is the pacing that, that this show wants because it really does want <laughs> you to be thinking of... It's not just about... Yeah, Again, then, it's not teaching, not about space uh, like exploration, but it's about space exploration and the people who do it and not trying to keep those separate. But to understand, you got to look at the whole person and understand the sacrifices these people make. But the science, the space science, I can say from this, from my perspective as a space fan, thumbs up. I think they did a really good job. And that eighth episode of, uh, of the first, which is largely uh, space stuff, is... Um, very well done they did a good job of making it seem extremely realistic so that's my review i think if you're a space fan and i haven't turned you off with all this talk of uh human relationships and feelings you should watch the first cool i'm gonna i'm gonna check this out we're not hulu members but this may this may push me over the edge i think so i think so i've completed my book report for this time although um we have a movie coming up hopefully next time we'll see if we can make it work but hopefully next time we will have been able to see first man which is not the first it's totally different it's, it's not not fictional mars mission it's real moon mission so we'll give that a shot hopefully so if you everybody out there first man uh about neil armstrong opens in early october we're going to try to see it you should try to see it too and uh, then we'll talk about it um hopefully in a fortnight yeah Cool. I think that does it for this uh, this fortnight. Until then, if you want to find links to all the stuff we talked about, you can head to the website relay.fm slash liftoff slash 81. You can do a couple of things when you're there. You can send us an email. There's a link in the sidebar. There's a link to our Tumblr where we post stuff in between episodes. Uh, or you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as Jay Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. I'd like to thank Squarespace for sponsoring this episode. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. Adios.